know that it's worth every single penny. Because those Geico commercials are among the most ever-present, creative, and memorable commercials that have been made. I can prove that to you. You know how I know that they're compelling commercials? Because 15 minutes could save you. Right, yes. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. And everybody in this room knows that. Uh, That advertising firm has uh, created some compelling characters. Uh, Of course, the gecko, the little uh, lizard-type creature. And then uh, there's those two guys that play the mandolin and the guitar behind that red curtain. And then, of course, the the character I'm thinking of today is everyone's most annoying uh, mammal, that camel. Right? That camel that walks to the office on Wednesday and celebrates, it's hump day, (laughs) right, that camel, it's funny, right, you know, the the camel's celebrating, if you made it through Wednesday, half the week is over, it's okay, we can survive the last bit of this week, it's, we've made it to the middle and it's downhill from here. I think about that commercial and that character and how compelling that character is, and I I wonder, I ask myself, what is it about what we do between Monday and Friday that we celebrate when it's half over? I had had a job once that I hated. It's not this one. But I had a job once (laughs) that I did not like at all. And uh, at that point in time, during, while I was working, I figured out the weekend is not long enough to endure a job that you hate. How is it? What, what, why is it that, this, that you plug this in and it makes sense that, that we should celebrate? Oh, it's hump day, and then, then it's almost Friday, and then woohoo, it's Friday. Why is that? What are we saying about what we do or what happens to us between Monday and Friday? If you're visiting with us this morning, um, you should know that what unites our church together is our common allegiance to Jesus Christ we, uh, and his gospel. We are commonly allied to him. That's why we meet together. It's why we sing. It's why we pray. It's why we give, why we study his word. The gospel is news. It's wonderful news, and we believe that it should infiltrate and transform every part of your life. And we're going to spend the next five weeks thinking about how the gospel weaves itself into your job. We want to make efforts to connect Sunday to Monday over the next uh, several weeks. We're going to look carefully into the Bible to see what it says about work. Your job is simultaneously the place where you spend most of your waking hours, and I think it's the place where we struggle to fit the gospel. It doesn't seem to work at work like we imagined. And the problem is not the gospel, the problem is not the Bible, but sometimes it's how we talk about how the gospel shows up at work. That's the problem. Uh, There are areas that we talk about well, we talk about them consistently, we talk about the gospel in your marriage and the gospel in your money and the gospel in parenting and the gospel in temptation and the gospel in time. We talk about lots of different things. We have not, as a church, by and large, talked very well about what the gospel means at work. 
if you've been around a church for a while, when the subject of work comes up, there's a few common themes, right? We talk about work as a place for you to do some evangelism. Or great opportunities for you to rub shoulders with people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. You should think about work like evangelism. Or we talk about work as a place where you earn money, money that you can give away, which is good. Well, money that you can raise your family, uh, uh, pay for your needs, and then with what's left over, give. So work hard so you have lots of money to give. Um, Or we sometimes talk about work as a place where you're to fulfill your duty, do your moral obligations. Work is a place where you should be honest and faithful and diligent. Those are the positive things we say about work. Sometimes when we go negative, we talk about work uh, as, a, as a warning. We issue a warning. Work is a distraction, and it can distract you from the things that are really important, like your family and your church. Or we talk about work like it's dangerous. It can become an idol. If work is the primary way that you identify yourself, if work is the where, where you get your uh, self-fulfillment, you're destined for disappointment. And all those things are true, but they're somewhat removed from, I think, a, a much more basic question about work. Why do we work? Does your work as a teacher or as a carpenter or a salesman, a nurse, does it have any value in and of itself? Do your lesson plans, uh, do your remodeling plans, does your sales presentation, does it have any lasting eternal value and usefulness by themselves? Or is it just the place where you're supposed to be a Christian, but the, the, the actual task that you do, well... Does the Bible have anything to say about the actual work that you do? Not just how you do it, but what you do. That's that's the question that I want to try and answer over the next few weeks. Now, um, let me tell you briefly where we're going. This is what we're going to do. Uh, Here's a technical title for what we're going to do. I'm going to give you, over the next few weeks, Lord willing, a biblical theology of work, which means I'm going to trace work through the story of the Bible. This morning we're going to talk about work in the world that God made. Next week we're going to talk about work as uh, in the fallen world. How do you work in a broken world? Um, then we're going to think about how Christ transforms work. And in the midst of it, we're going to talk about, uh, we'll spend a Sunday talking about what the Bible means when it uses the word calling or vocation. And then uh, finally, we're going to talk about work in the world to come. What is the relationship, if any, between heaven and work? And if you're thinking that it won't be heaven if we have to work, make sure you're here for that Sunday. Now, again, before we proceed, one more piece of introduction. Let me tell you what I mean when I use the word work. Work is often paid labor. That's often what we think about, your your job. But work, as the Bible defines it, is not just your job or your career, I want to think with you about all kinds of work. The Bible, it shapes our understanding of life, and it seems to divide your whole life, you could, into four different categories. Maybe you can add more. I'm satisfied with these four. Uh, They are work, play, rest, and worship. You are always doing one of those four things. You are always either working, resting, playing, or worshiping. And and if work is anything that you do that is not play, rest, or worship, it entails all kinds of things, most of which I bet you don't get paid for. 
emptying the dishwasher, mowing the lawn, drawing plans for a new building, writing an article for a newsletter, bathing children, cooking meals, hammering nails, carrying lumber, participating in a community organization. Now, on the notes sheet that's, that's in your bulletin, there's a, a sentence with a couple of blanks. I don't want you to fill it out now, but I want you to think about how you would fill it out. All right? Um, here, here's the sentence. I am a... And there's a blank there. And here you can put down the name of your occupation or uh, the, the, the position or a role you fulfill. I am a baker. I am a woodworker. I am a uh, paver. Maybe what you'd put there is something that you don't get paid for. It's not an official occupation. I am a student. I am a homeowner. I am a housewife. And then there's another blank. I am a blank and I, and there's that blank. And here you could write in what you do. You probably have a lot of things that you can fill in this first blank. You have a lot of things you could fill in this second blank for sure. Here's, here's what you do. I am a teacher and I, among other things, write lesson plans. I am a homeowner and I fix leaky pipes. Uh, I am a farmer and I milk cows. I'm a student and I take tests. Now I wonder how you would fill that in or how many different ways you could fill that in. You might, maybe you struggle to fill that in a little bit here. Um, some of you are retired. Don't write, I am retired. Don't write that in. You still have a task to do. I am a grandfather, and I drive my grandsons to work. You fill that in? I'm a husband, and I care for the needs of my wife. Some of you might struggle to fill this out because you're facing some sort of physical limitation that keeps you from working. I'm disabled, and I... Those situations are, are times where it's not just the blank line that might trouble you, but the a blankness of, of soul. You can't do what you want. Maybe I can help you fill that in a little bit this morning. Let's start at the beginning this morning as we think about work in the world that God made. And since we're starting at the very beginning, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. You'll find it on page 1 of your Bible. And I want to show you something that's in this text that you might not have noticed before. It's here, but we don't usually see it when we're reading this, this chapter. Here's a real basic statement of what I want you to say. I'm going to summarize Everything I'm going to say this morning right now, here it is. We are made to work by the God who works. We're made to work by the God who works. Work is part of God's design. Work is not part of the curse. And because God works, we work. He's the working God. He made us to be working people. Because he works Work in and of itself is dignified, it's honorable, it's a good thing to be engaged in labor, in working. Now, I want to read, and I'm going to read most of chapter 2. So let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 1 gives an overview of, of creation week, and then chapter 2 goes back to day 6 and gives us some special details about what happened on day 6. First, this end of the summary 
of the week. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work. Oh, did you see that before? Work. Well, I won't stop every time that word appears, but it's here. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had not yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper, someone to come alongside him and fulfill his work, suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals But for Adam, oh, no suitable helper was found. Everybody had a match. Everybody had a pair. But Adam. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Woohoo! This is now bone of my bones. That's in the Hebrew. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, uh, this is a uh, controversial passage. I understand that we, we, we can argue, these discussions are good to have. Is this passage, chapter 1 in particular, is this talking about days or ages? How determined is the length of time? Is this a literary telling of the story or is it a literal telling of the story? Those are debates that Christians have and they're good to discuss. We're going to bypass those because I'm interested in what the text actually says. And there's two things that I want you to see. The first one that I want you to see is that God works. This is the story of a working God. Um, he, uh, he does things. He's, he's active. There's a couple things here to see even, even about that. First of all, notice that God created the world during a work week. He created the world during a work week. Literal or not, this, this passage is cast in terms of a work week. That's the image. It's to be stamped into our mind. When did the world come into existence? Well, I'm going to borrow our culture to put this in. God made the world Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5. He clocked in Monday morning. 
when he called the world into existence. He put in an honest day's work. On Monday, he separated the light from the darkness. On Tuesday, he made the sky. On Wednesday, he made the land and the seas. And on Saturday, when he was finished, the work week was over, he clocked out and went home for the weekend. Now, this is a different story from other ancient stories about where the Bible came from. Uh, one of the great competitors in the ancient world for the Bible to explain where the world came from is a Babylonian text. It's called the Enuma Elish. It's never made any best-selling record uh, story novel uh, list ever. It's called the Enuma Elish. And according to this ancient Babylonian story, the world was created when a male god defeated a female goddess in warfare and out of her dead body he formed the planet. Isn't that a charming story? Creation came in that story from warfare, uh, not out of work. It's a difference in how you think about the world and God. Uh, the Greek story, in the Greek view, uh, the gods and humans originally lived together during a golden age, which sounds a little bit like Eden, except for the fact that nobody in this garden, this golden age, had to work. Everything was provided automatically for you. But God created the world during a work week. Now, second, notice this here. God made the world to be worked. God made the world to be worked. In uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, there's these very famous descriptions, these two adjectives, to describe the world that God called into existence. Verse 2 says, The earth was formless and empty. God did not start with a finished product. He started with a world that needed to be worked. It was formless and empty. I wish that we knew more about these adjectives. They don't appear often in the Bible. When they do appear frequently, they are uh, together. Formless is related to the word chaos. It's a mishmash. Materials thrown together in a heap. Some of you uh, love to go to the beach. In fact, over the last couple months, you have been dreaming of going to the beach and, and thinking about what it's like to lay on that hot sand and sweat and be uncomfortably warm. You have been longing for that. Remember that in July when you're out there and you think, oh, I just wish it would snow. Okay, remember that. Okay, remember that. Well, uh, if you have little children, you go to the beach, you show up to the beach, you bring pails and buckets because the beach is construction zone. You show up there, you're going to make a sandcastle, and what do you appear when you, what do you see when you first get to the beach? Everything there is formless. You have absolutely dry sand, you have moderately wet sand, you have soaking sand, and one of the things that you must do in order to build a good sandcastle is assemble your materials and put them uh, together so that you can make some sort of form because your, your, your sandcastle is formless when you show up at the beach. And the word empty is, is not difficult to, to understand. When God spoke and called the world into existence on day one, um, there, was n there were no trees, there were no animals, there were no people. It was unformed and unfilled. And, and chapter one tells us a story about how God formed the formless and filled the empty. Uh, the first three days, he gave form to the land. He divided the sea and, and the land. He divided the sky. He, he, he made it into shapes. He formed it. And then the last three days of creation, he filled it. He put birds and fish and, and people and mammals into creation. And he forms and he fills. 
God is working. One of my favorite descriptions of this in the Bible, poetic, is in the book of Job. Keep your finger in Genesis 1 and turn with me, if you would please, over to the book of Job, chapter 38. You'll find Job right before the book of Psalms. So it's uh, uh, four or five hundred pages in, and um, you'll find this long book of Job. Now, in Job chapter 38, God is speaking to Job, and he's telling him that he, God, is wiser and stronger than Job is, and that that Job can trust him because God knows what he's doing. And in verse 4, he uses creation of chapter 38. He uses creation to describe his wisdom and his power. And look at all the working words that God uses about himself in this passage. Job 38.4 Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. God's a mason. Did you know that? Verse 5 Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? He's a surveyor, God is. Verse 6 On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors? God's a security guard. When it burst forth from the womb, he's an obstetrician. He's he's a tailor. When I made the clouds its garment... And wrapped it in thick darkness. He's a civil engineer. When I fixed limits for it. He's a carpenter. And set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? He's God's in management. He makes a schedule. That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. He's in the criminal justice system too. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. You could keep going and see all these working words that God uses to describe how he called the world into existence. Actually, you can see that if we, if we go back to Genesis 1, even in the vocabulary here that is there, um, uh, look at verse 1, we have the word, of chapter 1, we have the word create. That's a unique word in the Bible. It's different than the other words for create in the Hebrew Bible. This is a unique word, uh, relevant only to God. It's a divine word. It's a theological word, and it means to call something out of exi- into existence that was not there before. This is where we get that Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God creates out of nothing. There was uh, um, a scientist once who, who dared to come before God and said, God, we don't need you anymore. We can do everything ourselves. We can clone. We can genetically engineer. We can explain where everything came from evolution. We don't need you anymore. And God said, really? Yes. The scientist said, we can do all of your work ourselves. And God said, well, let's have a contest. Let's make the world. Let's, let's, you and I will have a contest. Let's make a human being. You will see how you do. And let's do it the old-fashioned way, just like I did in the book of Genesis. Let's see how that goes. 
So God picked up some dirt and started forming. The scientists had agreed. God picked up some dirt. And the scientists picked up some dirt to start. And God looked at him and said, oh, no, you get your own dirt. God calls into existence out of nothing. Now, there's different words, though, here. It, that word create is different from the word made in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, so God made the vault. The word here means to, to shape an object, to form it. Like your children form uh, things out of Play-Doh when they play. Snakes are my specialty with Play-Doh. But um, your children form what's already there into shapes. Or this is a word that, that applies to a, a potter. He formed the man from the dust of the ground. He got down on his knees and he, he knelt in the dirt and he got enough water and consistency and he shaped the man. He made him. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, actually uses a different word, work, there. This is a work that involves skill. This is craftsman work. This is not uh, toilsome labor. God is, is a craftsman who, with skill, makes the world. Uh, last week, um, I attended a presentation that my daughter Claire did in school, and it was a presentation about Egyptian social structures. And she studied all the strata of society in ancient Egypt. There's seven different layers of society. Uh, and you would, you would have different incomes and different clothes, and you live in a different house, depending on what strata of society you're in. There's the pharaoh and the vizier and the priests and the scribes and the landowners. Craftsmen is near the bottom of the list. Craftsmen are just above slaves in the, the thinking of the ancient Egyptians. And remember, this book, Genesis 1, was written to a group of people that had just been set free from slavery in Egypt. And how does God introduce himself to them? He's a craftsman. He works with his hands to skillfully make things. We have this system in our culture where we have a strata of society too and we, we determine the value of your work according to a scale how do, we value the, how do we determine the value of someone's work? Money, right? That's how we do it. You have a job that is more valuable to society, we esteem, then, then we'll pay you more. Actually, that's not the only way we do it. Um, think of the ways that we evaluate to see if work is good or not. I have four ways that just came to my mind. This is not Bible. You can disagree with me about this. But um, four of them. Profit, how much money you make. Prestige, does it make you famous? Power, does it give you the right to tell other people what to do? Or preparation, do you have to go to school for a long time and get more degrees than Calvin and be really, really, really smart? Those four things. Good work, that's what good work is. You have good work if you make a lot of money or if you have a lot of power or if you're famous. Usually those things, these things go together. And on the one hand, that's, that's good. Uh, it, it, it moves people to develop their skills. On the other hand, though, it encourages us to value people or reject people based on their work and how much money they make and, or how famous it makes them. Not too long ago, just a couple of weeks, was the Academy Awards. They gave out the Oscars. I did not watch the Oscars. 
Um, but we have been inundated with news stories over the last, what, three months about all these award ceremonies that they have and who wore what and who said what and who won what award. I uh, read a quote from somebody that uh, um, I thought was apropos to those award ceremonies. Anthony Sacramone said this, I'm so glad there are so many award ceremonies because if there's one group of hardworking folk who aren't sufficiently celebrated, it's actors. We're tempted to value people on the basis of the level we assign to their work. But God introduces himself in the Bible as a potter. He's a craftsman. He's not a pundit. He's not a celebrity. He's not a politician. He's not an entrepreneur. He works. And in the New Testament, how does God come? He's a carpenter. Philip Jensen is a pastor in Australia. He wrote this. If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of Hebrews come into the world as a carpenter? He works. Work is dignified. Work is honorable. God works. Now third here in this passage, the thing I want you to see here is that God enjoys the fruit of his labor. God enjoys the fruit of his labor. Chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. This is God here um, um, with the last stroke of his paintbrush in his room, setting down the brush and looking around and seeing all four walls and all the trim done. And he says, oh, this is good. It looks good. This is God standing in his lawn and, and the, the lawnmower is off. And, and he, he just he can smell that wonderful freshly mowed smell and he can see the straight rows and the even cut and he's satisfied. He, he enjoys what, what he does. He takes delight in work because his work is, is good and it feels good to finish it. One more thing here. Notice that God rested from his work. Now again, the Bible is trying to shape how we think about life. And God, as, as important and necessary and healthy work is, work is not everything. By the seventh day, God had finished, verse 2, the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. There's a pattern here that's woven into creation. You were made to work and to rest. There's a ratio here that's important. Six parts work one part rest. God, by example, weaving this into life. Uh, your, your physical limitations may change that ratio. Um, you might not be able to do the six-part work and the one-part rest. That might be just true of you because of your, the physical condition that you are in. But if you reject this completely, uh, you are pushing against God's design. Do you know why people sometimes find themselves dissatisfied and restless and unhappy or discouraged, maybe it's because they're, pattern, they're pushing against this pattern of work and rest. Get a job. Have a job. Work. If you can't find a job where you earn money, then do something. Volunteer somewhere. Do some sort of work. Be investing in some way. I wonder if you've seen the movie Wally. Seen the movie Wally? It's a Disney cartoon. 
It's a charming little movie. It's about a robot whose name is Wally. He lives in the distant future. It's a time when human beings have made things, have made robots, have, have designed the world. Actually, they, you spoiled this world. They're living in a space station where uh, they don't have to work at all because there's robots to do everything for them. And uh, human beings, in the movie it's not about the human beings, but, but human beings show up in the movie, and when they show up because they don't have work to do, they're self-indulgent, bored couch potatoes. They look like big, fat, roly-poly babies. They sit in reclining chairs that move them everywhere they go. They have flabby arms. That all they ever, the arms ever need to do is to drink Slurpees. And all they do all day long is they watch video screens. Not working. To some people, they think, oh, if I could just quit my job, if I didn't have to work, that would be the dream life. But not working is dehumanizing. It's not attractive. God's a working God, and he made us to work. That's actually the second thing that I want you to see from this passage. God made us to work. He made us to work. He describes how he he created the world, chapter 2, human beings, and look at verse 5. Here's the situation. There's a problem in what God has made. Not a problem, but something's missing. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. I think he's talking about cultivated plants then. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and what's the problem? There's no one to work the ground. You've got to find somebody to work here. There's no one to do what God has been doing. And then human beings are created. That's what happens in verse 7. Human beings were made to fill this role. Two things that I want you to notice about this here, about your work. Work is part of image bearing. Work is part of image-bearing. Verse 26 uh, of chapter 1 says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God is appointing, he's going to make some people who are going to work, manage, the word rule, steward this world that God has made. Um, in the ancient world, uh, kings and emperors would set up around their kingdoms. They might be in the capital, but around their kingdoms, they would set up uh, statues of themselves. So you could see the statue. Uh, the Romans did it with coins. They put their own picture on coins. You, you may live in a place and never see the emperor in the flesh in your whole life, but you know who's in charge of where you live because you have seen his statue. And this is what God does on the world calls the world into existence, and puts his own image, a representation of himself, on the planet to show people who's in charge. Who rules here? Well, um, God does, and he looks just like that, that right there. And, and, and human beings, they do what God has done as his image bearers. We read the part where it says in verse... Um, on 19 of chapter 2, um, God, Adam gets to name the living creatures. That's what the man does. Why does Adam get to do this? Because God has already named things. He's already done it. In, in chapter 1, verse uh, 8, God names the sky. He gives it the, the, the name sky, and then he gives Adam the responsibility of naming all of the creatures. Work is part of image-bearing. We're doing what God does when we work. 
second here, though, notice that work is central to our mandate. It's central to our mandate. It's central to what God tells us to do. There are four words that I want to show you in this text that are, are uh, to describe what human beings are supposed to do. In verse 28 of chapter 1, God tells Adam and Eve, or the man and the woman, to fill the earth. Fill the earth. Now, here I know he's talking about having children. That's true. But there's also a sense in which God wants the earth to be filled, not just with humans, but with human civilization. Fill the earth. There are boundaries to the Garden of Eden, and you're supposed to spread them. Fill the earth with, with society, with civilization. That, that's one of the words there. The second word, though, is in verse 28, too. It says, fill the earth and subdue it. This word subdue is a tricky word. There are some people who, who look at this word and they see that, well, sin hasn't happened yet, so they tend to emphasize the fact that subdue means to manage or, or rule over. The problem with that, though, is that the word subdue in the Bible doesn't mean just manage. It, it also means conquer, rule over, wrestle into submission. I think by subdue, he is being anticipatory of what's going to happen in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve rebel and sin comes in the whole world. Work's going to get a lot harder. We'll talk about that next week. And Adam and Eve are going to have to wrestle the world subdue it there are weeds that are going to need to be pulled out of the ground go pull them there's going to be uh, uh, unlevel ground that's going to need to be flattened go flatten the ground there's there's going to be trees that are going to need to be planted dig the hole and put the tree in the ground subdue it Uh, make the world your your uh, do your bidding subdue it He's not saying abuse it. He's not telling us to destroy the world, but to tame it. All right, two more words here. Uh, They're they're kind of related. Um, Verse, there's overlap, actually. Verse 15 of chapter 2. There's the word work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. This word means cultivate. Cultivate. Again, God has already put the garden down and it's got certain borders and Adam and Eve are supposed to spread the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. This is how you fill the earth. You, you make the garden bigger. Spread it out uh, across the face of the earth. Cultivate it. And then the word keep. Maintain it. Um, verse 15 says, work it and take care of it, in my translation, or keep in yours, maybe. It means to guard, to maintain, to take care of it, to uh, protect it. Those four uh, verbs. Now, seeing those four words there and those concepts, and I know there's overlap between them, I want you to think for a moment about the job that you do, the tasks that you do, the work that is yours, and I imagine that what you do in some way fits into one of these categories. There's certain responsibilities that you have that you fit into one of these categories. As a teacher, you are spreading human civilization. You're teaching those uh, little children to read, and you want to spread 
uh, educated society around the world. Uh, as a farmer, you're breaking new ground and you're cultivating crops. Maybe you work in the criminal justice system and you wrestle a rebellious world into submission. Uh, maybe as a cabinet maker, a contractor, you're taking a, a, a tree. Well, you probably don't start with a tree. If you do, man, you're really working. You, you take what once was a tree and, and you build a house with it. Or you make a, a, a beautiful uh, uh, counter uh, or, or cabinets so people can live in it. And you're, you're cultivating society by, by the labor that you are doing. Or as a nurse, or as a, as a dentist, a counselor, you're, you're keeping, you're, you're caring for broken people. As a restaurant owner, you're, you're feeding hungry people. You're caring, you're taking care of this world that God has made. You're, you're, you're at home, and you are pushing back against the boundaries of dog hair that are endlessly falling off this mutt that for some strange reason you bought into your home. That's not a personal story, by the way. <laughs> right? You're pushing back. Pushing back, it's spring, right? There's going to be mud tracked into your house constantly. You're pushing back every time you get out the Swiffer. You're pushing back. Can you put what you do here? Um, filling, subduing, cultivating, keeping. This is what God put us here to do. He called this world into existence and he sent you to work it. What strikes me about this passage is that three of these verbs in particular um, are relevant to what's going on even in this scene. Adam and Eve, in this perfect world that God made, they have the opportunity to fill and cultivate and keep. The one word, and I mentioned before, that doesn't seem to fit quite in the same way is this word subdue. I mean, without that word, this would be a beautiful picture of, of work. <laughs> Just cooperating with God in the world that he made that's responsive to us and that does what we ask, and work is so pleasing, but that's not your experience, is it? Oh, you've got to go to work tomorrow, right? And there's a stack of paperwork that you're going to have to subdue. You're going to end up staring at a computer screen all day and clicking buttons and entering things. Huh. You're going to have, you're going to have to work with some incompetent coworker who just doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to work hard, won't do what they're supposed to, and maybe you have responsibility over that person to subdue them. This is not, this is a beautiful picture, it's a wonderful thing, and, and there's still echoes and shadows of it, in, even in the work that we do. But uh, um, uh, this is not how jobs always work. What's interesting is that the New Testament uses this very passage to talk about God's fixing of the problem. Someday we believe God is going to fix the world. He's going to recreate. He's going to repair what is broken. And now, now he does it chiefly in individuals and through individuals. And Paul uses this language, this wonderful verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any person is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. God in his great power is someday going to remake the whole world. 
and work will be, again, this good. But for now, it's not. And part of the problem is not just out there, not just with that incompetent boss, not just with that paperwork, not just with a computer that you can't get to boot properly. The problem is, is, is in, in here. That little phrase, uh, in Christ, describes people who have a particular relationship with God. Our relationship with God right now is not, is, is one of alienation. We are naturally born, rather, uh, alienated from God, separated from Him. Uh, we want to use work for our own ends. We want to earn money because it makes us happy. We want to get where we want to get, and I'm sorry if you're in the way, but I'm going to come through you because you're in my way. We are uh, envious of one another, and we're critical of one another, and we're selfish. We have this regard for ourselves that, that spoils work, among other things. But there's this invitation to be reconciled to God and not alienated to him. And it comes about in, in Christ. In Christ. The problem is not that just that work is hard. The problem is that we have rejected God's authority and therefore we're not only alienated from him, from him but we are worthy of his righteous wrath, his, his discipline, his, his punishment. The Lord Jesus came, he worked spent most of his time working on earth. Then he died on the cross for us and he bore God's wrath. He bore God's punishment on our behalf on the cross. He died, he rose again. And now there is this offer in the Bible to be reconciled, to be reconciled with God, to turn to him in dependent faith and recognize that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient payment for my sins and your sins. And you know what God does for those who turn to him? He starts recreating you again. He forms in your life what is chaotic. And he fills in your life what's empty. That's what God does. He's the creator. He's the worker. In coming weeks, we're going to talk about how he forms and fills your work because we work in the world the working God made. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we confess this, this uh, notion of thinking you of, as a working God is sometimes foreign to us, but you introduced yourself that way, calling the world into existence in a, in a good work week. Oh, you do amazing work. We celebrated that. And, and Father, we are grateful to you as people that uh, someday you're going to fix completely what, what is broken. And we're grateful that you work in us to recreate not just the world outside, but the world inside of us. How grateful we are that you form formless things and you fill empty things. Do that work in our lives and... and as, and, and transform how we think about work because of it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>